morning, Providence. It's good to see you here. Good to see a number of guests with us, too, as we seek to reassemble as a church and uh, a lot of new faces. Uh, if you are new, uh, we do have two-hour Sunday morning services, and uh, usually an hour and 45 to two hours. I had a friend send me, Jason, he visited on a Sunday, and he loved it because, Jason, if you would just trim this service to an hour, you would be a mega church. And I said, that sounds like hell. Thank you for reminding me that I don't ever want to go back to that kind of church. So, um, But it is a real uh, challenge for people who are used to doing this and uh, getting the one-hour kind of experience. So we're just getting started. We're only halfway. Um, good to see uh, James and Kenya and family with us. They are actually feel called by God to plant a multi-ethnic church in Longmont. And they were told to come here and check out what it's kind of like. So let's, let's, let's commend their faith. Uh, might be the hardest thing you do in ministry, um, especially in America today. But God bless you guys on the venture. Good to see the Sycamus over here. Uh, They're with Jesus on Colfax. Uh, actually left the megachurch five years ago to go live in a motel on East Colfax and knock on doors in those hotels on Friday nights and pray with people, and they're still doing it. I don't know many megachurch pastors that do the downward trajectory of the kingdom uh, in the world's eyes, and uh, they've been friends with us for five years, and good to see Sean and his wife, you guys, with us. Thank you very much. Um, and Sherry, where's Sherry? She's gone? I did not know she could sing. Did you guys? All right. Music team, grab her. Forever. That was beautiful. Sherry just continues to amaze, doesn't she? Uh, came through the program here. Now she's on staff, and she is large and in charge around here Monday through Friday, guys. I'm telling you, she's, she's the stuff. She was with us down at Juneteenth at the festival this uh, yesterday as well, and her countenance never changes. I wish she was here. Uh, I would like to see her turn red. But um, <laughs> All right, good to have you here. We are in uh, a series here in Genesis called Processing the Pandemic, and we're in that uh, Genesis 32 passage. And uh, if you did not listen to the sermon last week, uh, I rarely say this, but you kind of need to go listen to it for this week to make sense. So if you're here for the first time and you didn't listen, uh, you just have to catch up. Uh, and I won't rehearse everything as to why we're actually preaching about processing the pandemic, but I basically tried to make the point significantly last week that this is the largest collective traumatic trial the globe has gone through in your lifetime, and it may never happen again. And so, therefore, we should listen to what God has done for us in the pandemic, regardless of your weariness about it. Like, it is worth it to take some time and to process it as well. My dream would be that next Sunday, uh, between 10 to 20 of you would actually uh, synopsize what God taught you in the pandemic, and we'd have basically a service of testimony of the word, but you would thoughtfully write it out, no longer than one page. It would have the elements that we talked about, and we collectively see how God grew the church during the pandemic, because it's not all about you. It's all about us as a group, and so I just want to challenge you to do that. Uh, take notes today as you start penning it. I want you to do it in the, with the mindset that if your great-grandson rummaged through a chest after your demise and found this, they would say, wow, in that global pandemic, this is what my great-grandmother actually learned from God. That's why I want you to think about it. 
And uh, I, I, I encourage you even to put it on the wall in your house. I think the pandemic is this significant that we will not be the same as a church. You will not be the same as a human being. Our world is not going back. And so therefore, if God's in charge of all things, you would think then if spiritual growth is at the top of his mind, that we as a church ought to be taking time uh, to study it. So I'll be needling a bunch of you this week saying, hey, do you have your story ready to tell? And I just think we're going to see this manifold wisdom of God and the spiritual growth of his people on display, and I think it'll be so encouraging. So uh, the passage is read, and down in verse 26 uh, is kind of where we begin. And I'm actually going to give you uh, three things this morning that I want you to actually incorporate into your testimony and actually give you as kind of like, this is really what I think God wants from us during the pandemic. And the first one comes out of verse 26, where it is a hunger for God. A hunger for God. And this is actually not, uh, this is actually a verb when I give this point, like, you must hunger for God. Because if you go through the whole pandemic, but you didn't hunger for God in the middle of it, this is just a boring rote exercise. At the end of our sermon today, we're actually going to break into small groups like we did last week and spend 20 minutes kind of discussing um, this, th- this idea of processing the pandemic. And I want you to talk about your hunger for God in the middle of it. Did you hunger for God? Jacob, as he's wrestling with the angel, says uh, to the angel, I will not let you go unless you bless me. There are times when we wrestle with God where there's great frustration, exhaustion, pain, and confusion. And I wrote this down. God meets you at the crossroads of your life plan and his will. God meets you right there. And his purpose is to redirect you to be more conformed to his image. And the pandemic was a perfect time for that. And if you didn't ask really deep questions in the pandemic around what God wants you to do in your life, I think you missed it. Because God doesn't waste anything, and so don't waste your trial. You should interpret the pandemic as God's growth crucible for you. Jacob, in the middle of wrestling with God, has this huge aha that he could manipulate his life all the way through, including taking his birthright from his brother. But birthright means nothing if you are fighting against God. Because you can accumulate a good career, a good education, and a nice family. If that will all run its course, God will pull out the pillars of your identity so that you realize it's all about him. What I loved about the pandemic is there was nobody in the world who could write a check and make it go away. Do you realize in the Western culture... The, the wealthy can almost always write a check to solve their problems. Hire the best attorney, right? Settle outside of court. Uh, get the best health care. You know, I worked for a man who was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. And he had seven bouts with cancer. Do you know why he survived six? Because he, could, he had the best doctor in town. He had the best possible health care. But the pandemic didn't allow anybody to escape. And nobody could make it go away. So when you meet God at that crossroads, he's trying to do a deep work in your life. And this is where you need to say, God, I'm not going to let the pandemic go and what you're doing in my life unless you bless me. You know, David, when he fell with Bathsheba and he penned Psalm 51, he says, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. David, I think, knew that he did not kill that giant. He did not kill that lion and the bear. He did not defeat those armies. It was God's Spirit who went with him. And he knew God's hand was on his life and he wanted nothing less than that for the rest of life, even though he committed grave sin. When you finally realize that you're not going anywhere meaningful without God, you will finally get real and desperate for him. 
Jesus will move from your spiritual weekly duty to your daily sustenance. What was Jacob saying here? He was saying, God, I have riches, I have family, I have a plan for my life, but I don't have you, and I want you. I'm not letting you go until you bless me, and I'm going your way. So you must have a hunger for God. And then two, I say this, embrace your transformed identity. In verse 27, the man says, what is your name? He says, Jacob. And he says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you struggle with God and with humans and have overcome God gave Jacob a new name. Uh, I, I went through numbers of different resources to actually find out what Israel means. And you have basically, I struggled with God, or you have people that say, God fights for me. God fights. This is the, the idea of Israel. What he was basically saying is, I'm actually going to take you in this moment of struggle, and I'm actually going to give you a new identity. There's nothing more core to your identity than your name. And he's saying, you're no longer going to be this manipulator guy. I'm going I'm to give you a name that says God fights. You have contended with God. You have overcome. And if you're going to walk into the promised land, you're going to do it with a surrendered will. For the new nation of Israel, God wanted to set a precedent that as, as Jacob walked in, they were not going to do this in the power of the flesh the way other nations gained power. They were going to do it through the power of divine blessing. He had a new name, a new identity, a new picture on life. And, this is, and at your breaking point, when God starts to start breaking you, this is when God starts revealing his calling for you. It was in the pandemic. God started really messing with me. I mentioned last week around uh, my work with Cross Purpose, our nonprofit here. And, uh, you know, we help about 200 families a year escape poverty through the nonprofit that was birthed out of this ministry. And we've been doing the same thing for four straight years. And it was kind of like a make or break. Are you guys actually going to go and, and, and help more families? But that means more stress, uh, more exhaustion, hire more staff, have more problems, try to raise more money, all this stuff. And, you know, people were fine with us just keeping cross-purpose the way it was. But God started just messing with us. And I think he gave me a vision right toward the end of the pandemic of the parable of the talents where, you know, he gave one five talents, one two talents, one one talent, and the guy with one buried it in the earth, and he basically condemned him, and the other two doubled their talent. And it was really became a stewardship issue, like you've got this talent of a way to help churches love their neighbor in a holistic way, go and steward that talent. And there was a little bit of a wrestling match there. But it was at that time in the pandemic that I think God revealed his calling to us as a team and said, go, steward this talent. September 7th, we opened the second site in Englewood, and now 200 more families every year will be helped out of location number two. And then in 2023, we hope to open location number three. Sean would like us to come to North Aurora and help 200 families over there. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a whole new thing for us as a ministry. But this is what God does at those crossroads. The new identity is no longer just help Northeast Denver for us. It is, it is help the churches of Denver love their neighbors well. And I looked at this passage and I thought, God's like really going in on Jacob. But why? Because it looks to me like God backed a loser. I mean, the better behaved one is by far Esau. Why in the world did he pick the manipulator, the liar, the chicken? Well, God always has backed the loser. <laughs> he backed you. <laughs> he backed me. It ought to be extremely comforting that God backed the loser. Amen. 
We tend to think that God looks for disciples like Harvard looks for students. Do you have a 4.7 unweighted GPA? You know, all that kind of stuff. And what family did you come from? And who are you paying off in the back room? Like, that's how you get into Harvard, right? In God's screening, it's like, okay, he can't speak in public. Uh, he's scared to death. He's got a record of manslaughter. Yeah, let's admit Moses into the discipleship thing. Let's make him a leader of the entire people of God. Oh, there's a rich guy. He says he's kept all the commandments. You know what? We can just ask him some questions in the interview about selling everything he has and give to the poor, and he'll just take himself out. I guarantee it. Manipulator, liar, puts his family at risk, deceives his brother. Yeah, let's let Jacob in. Let's back that loser. Because it was never going to be about the best, the brightest, and the most talented. So God gives him this new name and a new identity. I bet you Jacob struggled with it. I've, I've, I've passed it on for 25 years, and when I speak calling into people's lives, the, the biggest reaction I get is fear, and that's not me. But if only you knew. If I could just open this closet back here, and I feel like as a pastor, like part of our main job is to say, no, no, this is, God picked you for this for a reason. And then ironically, Jacob then gives the place a name, Peniel. I saw God face to face and my life was spared. Places actually do matter. And actually, I actually want to make this part of the exercise for you, is I want you actually to think about naming the place, the place where you did dealings with God in the pandemic. Because when you name the place and you name the experience, it gives place for significance and the capability of memory. I'm calling my place on deck. Because I worked from home, and I worked on this deck that we put onto our house, and I worked there for hours and hours and days and days and months and months, and it was on that deck that I had my wrestling with God. And it was on that deck uh, where Jen walked out one day, and I was just kind of grumpy, you know, grumpy about my wrestling with God, and she just spoke prophetic words into me. It was on that deck, right, that I will always remember the pandemic and what God did in my life. So give the place a name. And what is your transformed identity? And then third, I say this, accept the limp that God has given you. Accept the limp that God has given you. Because we, I talked to you last week that when he's wrestling with God there, God actually takes his hand, touches his hip, the ball in the hip socket rips out, right, with all the muscles and tendons, Right? That's when Jacob then knew this was God because nobody else, I don't care if you're an MMA fighter, you can't touch someone's hip and blow the hip socket out. And God gives him a lifelong limp. Last week you talked about the wound and I actually want to go in a little bit further and deeper on the wound here today. Because the wound is actually what produces lifelong change in how you show up to yourself and to the world. The wound is how you show up. And I first want to talk about how the limp affects you. When God gives you a limp, and I will say this, not everybody in the pandemic may have gone to the point where you actually discovered the core wound of your life, but you all have one. In our work at Cross Purpose, we take the words of Father Boyle out of Homeboys in L.A. who said, unless you help families in your program heal from the core wound of their life, they will actually get a job, go to work, their boss will say something that triggers them, they'll say something to their boss, uh, mean or nasty or some visual uh, signs, and they will lose their job and be back in poverty. So if you don't help them heal the core wound of their life, you're really wasting your time doing career education. Amen. 
And that's why we say when you walk into these doors as a neighbor, we are primarily a therapeutic environment of tenderness and care more than we are a workforce development organization. Amen. So what is the wound? And the wound uh, produces the limp. And the first thing the limp does is it slows you down to let God change you. You know, God's not really care. He doesn't really care about the size of your ministry. He doesn't really care about how many people you're going to impact in your life. That, that's all the outflow of the work he actually wants to do to transform you into his image. But sometimes he's got to slow you down because we actually don't think the wound is beneficial to us in our ministry. We, we tend to think people want the, the shiny toy and the great dynamic speaker, right? And the, the, the uh, Instagram account with hundreds of thousands of followers, and now I'm an influencer. And that's, that's really what we're after. And a limp doesn't really uh, provide that. But God says, I don't really care about the number of followers you have. I really care about the quality of your following me and letting me transform you. Jacob is transformed because prior to uh, the wrestling, he put the women and children across the river first. And I actually heard in the testimony of think Simon this morning talking about putting the women and children first. But if you actually read the next chapter, after he wrestles with God and he crosses the river the next morning, he actually goes in front of the women and children. That's a complete change in how he actually was going to lead. He was going to go in front. Jacob says, I'm no longer going to stay behind. I'm going to go in front. And, this, and, and, and you can imagine as he's moving forward that the posture he has is something his family has never seen. This limp that God gives you is a permanent reminder that you are nothing without God. And God Amen. wants you to live the story out with a visual limp. Amen. Let me ask you this. Are you acting out a hero story in your life right now or a gospel story? God has no room for the hero story. Amen. He has no room for it. It is not in his economy. God is always the one that is the hero. We are simply there to live out the gospel. And heroes hate limps. Disciples magnify the limp. You are going to feel weaker by ministering out of your limp, but the opposite is actually true. God is the one. Uh, it's great to have your son on Father's Day. Amen from the back row. That's a gift from the Lord. You've watched me limp. Nobody sees your limp like your kids. Right? Yeah. No more, no more testifying from the back row on this one, okay? <laughs> Your limp affects you, but really the, the biggest thing is your limp actually affects others. Because if you're actually living out of that wound, it is evident to other people. Uh, Joseph Adra, you gave us a gift, brother, a couple weeks when you stood on this platform, and you just exposed your limp to all of us. And I was sitting in the front row just, just stunned. And, and, and people were moved and changed. And we got messages the next week because you just went all in on us. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Because when you, actually, when you actually embrace the wound and the limp, you can't hide it. Can you imagine as he's crossing the brook, his family, all their belongings are across the brook. Off in the distance is Esau and his militia, a 400 military. And he is now walking with his hip out of socket. 
He probably has self-fashioned a crutch for him to walk on. And he is walking to meet what could be his death. Can you imagine how his wives and kids looked at him? Can you imagine how his brother looked at him? Remember, if you're in Esau's shoes, the last time you saw your brother is when he gypped you out of your entire birthright, your future riches, your inheritance, and you put a death threat on his head. That was 20 years ago. You haven't seen him in 20 years, and now he's walking towards you. He drags his leg. And, and then the scripture says he bows seven times to the ground. I mean, just, just picture that, right? You bow, and then he's limping. And he's probably still in excruciating pain. What, what happened with the limp is that in that moment, he actually, Esau actually, something happens in his heart. And it moves him, and it creates this empathy. And, it, and, it, and instead of this defensiveness and posturing, Esau, the Bible says, runs to meet Jacob, embraces him, throws his arms around his neck, and kisses him, and they wept. You see, Esau had been deeply betrayed. I read one author this week that says, betrayal hardens the heart against grief. If you've been deeply betrayed in your life, it just calcifies this heart of flesh. Amen. And in that moment, when Jacob's living out his limp, God starts to peel that crusty exterior away from Esau's life. And Esau explodes in empathetic emotion to his brother. See, we all like to put on a front. God likes to actually touch us in a way that we can't keep the front up much longer. He actually wants to use your limp to heal people. Amen. Because when you actually decide that you have nothing to prove and you'll let God use anything, including your transformed weakness, he then will expand your influence. Right. Like, this is who I want to hold up. I back the loser, and I want to show that through the loser, right, there is liberty in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You do not heal your wound, by the way, by going to your wounds for comfort. This is part of the problem we're seeing in culture. People think they're going to be comforted uh, by going to their wound for comfort, and so they're spitting this vial about their wound. That is not a transformed wound. It is only transformed when you can see that the person talking about their wound is using it to actually comfort others. That's how you see a gospel wound. The most important thing that day that happened, actually I don't think is the reunion between Jacob and Esau. And I, and I have read this passage a hundred times. But there's these two little words I never saw before. Because as dad is hobbling up to meet his brother, there is a little six-year-old boy who's watching his dad. It's appropriate in his father's day to talk about this. And he's hiding behind his mom's skirts as he's watching his dad that he's never seen in that position before. He's never seen his dad weak. He's never seen his dad limp. He's only seen his dad uh, who was outbursts of anger in the kitchen toward his mom. But he knew something was wrong with his dad. 
And his mom says, hey, it's okay, son. Your dad hasn't seen his brother in a while. Yeah, but mom, why is he walking like that? It's okay, son. I don't really know why either, but he's okay. You see that look on his face? Mom, wh where's he going? Who's that guy? That's his brother. I don't know. I don't feel good, Mom. I'm all nervous. Oh, J Joseph, just calm down. Just calm down, Joseph. And Joseph watches as a six-year-old boy, his dad, do the most courageous thing possible by facing his enemy, embracing his lip. And it changed the world. You say, what do you mean it changed the world? Because it was 11 years later that little six-year-old Joseph is now 17 years old, and his brothers betray him, throw him into a well, and then sell him off as a slave uh, into slavery. And it is not until he's 39 years old, Amen. he's actually sitting in Esau's seat, and the brothers, his brothers that betrayed him, come walking toward him. You remember that? And he, and he can't handle it. And he manipulates them. He sends them all these crazy journeys. He threatens them. He throws them in jail. He's doing everything his dad did. And in Genesis 45, verse 14 and 15, listen to you if you, this sounds familiar to you. Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. It's the exact same thing, the exact same words. It's the exact same ministry. Dads, if you are here, the greatest thing you will do is model the discipleship life of Jesus in a non-heroic manner, embracing your limp and walk, let your kids walk it out. You walk that out in front of them. And you know what? You're teaching them how to handle this in their life because they will be betrayed too. Several commentators actually believe that Jesus uses the wording from this passage to describe a New Testament passage. What New Testament passage comes to your mind when you see this scene played out? Anything come to your mind? The prodigal son. That with the father of the prodigal, when his son comes back from blowing his inheritance and living a godly life, here's the New Testament passage. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The exact same scene. So you have... Joseph watching Jacob do it. Then you have Joseph himself doing it. Then you have Jesus referencing this, this reconciliatory embrace. And then we have Jesus himself. At the end of his life, he actually goes to the ones that betrayed him. He offers forgiveness. And, and right before his death, he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and you stone those sent to you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. The betrayed father is sitting there with arms open wide and we are the chicks, right? We are those, the ones he wants to wrap his arms around. And you know what we did? We killed him. We killed him. But the beautiful thing of the father is even though we killed him, his posture for us never changed. Amen. Thank you, God. 
we have finally run into somebody who will not back away from our madness and our harming and our betrayal tactics and our manipulation. No, he says, you know what? I've got a plan for you. And he opens up his arms and he dies. And so now he still stands there with arms open wide, but we actually see the wounds. The nail prints in his hands. These are the wounds of his ministry. And all he says is, Christian, fall into my arms. I want to weep on your neck and kiss you and say, it is finished. Take on my new identity. Take on this calling. Take the wound and minister out of it because I love you. And now go because I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, transform our lives. You brought us to our knees through a global pandemic. Heaven forbid we run on with our lives without pondering perhaps one of the deepest collective trials in our life. So God, I'm going to ask your spirit to permeate this room right now. As we enter into a time of discussion, Lord, that it would f- something would happen here. We'd have some space to listen to your voice and what you're doing in our lives. Lord, we want to be more like you. God, thank you for taking me to the deck. Thanks for showing me some pictures that I can say, like, life's going to be different coming out of COVID-19. And Lord, as a pastor, I just pray this for the sheep in this room, that we would experience the same hug, healing, embrace, and weeping of our Father. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to do here is we are going to divide, uh, go ahead and advance that slide, it's not moving for me. We are going to move into a small group discussion. You're welcome to meet with your community group. I know we have a number of guests here. We, we definitely invite you to stay for the next 20 minutes as well. And these are the questions we actually want you to actually ponder. So the way it's going to work is when you up, break up, I want no more than about eight or nine per group. Um, you're actually going to take the first five minutes and not say anything. Because you have to process these questions. If the pandemic caused a new identity or a new way of being, what would its name be? That takes thought, not discussion. If you were to give your pandemic place of struggle a name, what would the name of that be? And then if in the pandemic, God actually revealed to you the limp of your life and started pushing on that thing, what is that wound or that limp or that place where he's actually calling you into? So I'd take five minutes you're quietly in a circle. You're going to write those things down, pray about it, and then I actually want you to go around and kind of share it. And this is a precursor to next Sunday when we'll all stand up here and you bring your one-pagers and you read it to the congregation. We take the passage of Joseph and COVID-19 and we see what transformation has happened in our body. So uh, I would ask a few of you to uh, take knowledge of the guests that are with us, with us and invite them into your group as well if they'd like to stay. But to me, this is like holy work here uh, for the next 20 minutes in our sanctuary. All right, let's divide up and uh, small group leaders, raise your hands. These people know where they can kind of group up. I did notice last week there were some people that over-talked like five to eight minutes in the debrief. Facilitators, please keep those talkers to a minimum. Keep the ball moving in the discussion. 